Welcome to RAQA Today, the podcast that puts the fun back in quality, compliance, and regulatory affairs. Here's your host, Michelle Lott. Today, we're going to go through the concepts of state of the art and standard of care as they apply to MDR or medical device regulation. And is this really more than just semantics? So we're going to explore these terms across several different EU documents, and we are going to see how these terms uh, evolve and impact your technical documentation. Now, for those of you who have seen my webinars before, this is going to be a little different. You know, I use a lot of pictures and graphics and, and storytelling. Here, I do have a lot of words. And the reason I have used the actual text and the words is because the words are important in understanding the context. So bear with me. I'm going to keep it as uh, interesting and lively as possible, but it is one of my more, more technical presentations. The state of the art is at the heart of all of your documentation that you need to support a MDR CE marking application. This is going to be important for your actual technical documentation and your GSPRs, for your risk analysis, for your post-market surveillance documentation, and then also for your clinical documentation in your uh, clinical evaluation reports and clinical investigation plans. So if we look at the life cycle of state-of-the-art, we have, we, we're going to start with the existing state of the art. So how are we going to define what the existing state of the art is? Conceptually, if we just want to see how does the general population view state of the art, we can Google it. Well, Google says that it's the most sophisticated stage of technology, art, or science, that it's the result of modern methods, and that it's it's also the most up-to-date features. But what happens if we look at 14971-2009? Well, for the first time in history, we get a formal definition of state of the art in that it is the developed stage of technical capability as it regards to products, processes, and services based on relevant consolidated findings of science, terminology, and experience. It is also the current, currently and generally accepted as good practice in technology and medicine, but this is very important, and this is a note in the definition on, in the standard, it does not imply the most technologically advanced solutions. So we have to take this concept of generally accepted and good practice and couple it with it does not imply technologically advanced. And if uh, we look at just the ISO 14971, this version mentions state of the art 15 different times in about 20 plus or 20 some odd pages. So it talks about state of the art in pre-market. And in your pre-market analysis of state of the art, you have to take into account the state of the art in order to determine the suitability of your medical device to be placed on the market. You know, typically this is done through a risk analysis 
uh, tool or assessment. It further talks about that state of the art is generally acknowledged and it can include newer revised standards, published validated data, and alternative and alternative medical devices and therapy therapies. Well, most of us are familiar with, okay, the European harmonized standards that you have to comply or do a gap analysis with whatever is current at the time that your technical documentation is being reviewed or re-reviewed. But if we start looking at published validated data specific to the application of your medical device and the alternative medical devices or therapies, we're going to see that this definition is going to uh, evolve well past just those new or revised standards. So the manufacturer should also take into account considerations of generally acknowledged state of the art, including those newer revised standards, but that particularly the conditions under which those follow-up actions need to be considered with changes in state of the art, such as alternative medical device or therapies becoming available on the market. So now you need to look at more than just those standards and you have to look at the whole spectrum of care compared to your product. So that is kind of setting the context for the understanding of what is standard of care. So let's take a look at what Google thinks about the standard of care. They think it is the appropriate treatment based on scientific evidence and collaboration between professionals. It is the level at which the average prudent provider in a given community would practice. It is also defined, and this is my favorite definition, what a minimally competent physician, because who doesn't want a minimally competent one working on them in the same field would do in the same situation with the same resources. The problem with any of these definitions of standard of care is where are we talking about a minimally competent physician with resources? I happen to be from very rural Mississippi. I guarantee you that a physician there might be minimally competent, but he does not have the, re the competency or resources at somebody uh, in the Mayo Clinic in Chicago. I also guarantee you, you can't take that, that Mayo Clinic doctor, pick him up and put him in the middle of learning Mississippi or Indianola, Mississippi, and he can do the same thing with almost no resources that these physicians can. Where are we talking about? Are we talking about the middle of Europe? Or are we talking about China, where uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, they built a, a huge hospital in 15 days to be state-of-the-art and standard of care uh, for the challenges, the unique challenges that were provided with COVID. So you can see where standard of care very much changes based off of where you practice medicine and the technologies are, that are available. So without those challenges um, and that context around uh, state-of-the-art and standard of care, now let's go look at what does the MDR actually say about these terms? Well, the MDR introduced 70 new definitions 
but it did not define state of the art or standard of care. It mentioned state of the art 11 times without the context of the definition. And so without the definition, we have to look specifically at those words and how they're being modified and used to understand an implied definition of state of the art. Some of the first that it's talking about state of the art is how it's established. And part of what MDR did was, was establish expert labs and then task them to develop both guidance documents for notified bodies and standards for industry, which we've been talking about those uh, technical standards forming an element of state of the art. And they task them in four specific areas. Uh, physiochemical characterization, uh, microbiological, biocompatibility, and non-clinical toxicology, toxicology testing. Then they move from, okay, how do we establish out of the context of any particular device, how do we establish state of the art with these expert labs to device-specific general safety and performance uh, requirements and characteristics? And so here in context of what they expect you to prove for your specific device, they have to, that you have to prove obviously it's suitable for its intended purpose, but you, you do that by saying that it's safe and effective by constituting acceptable risks when weighed against the benefits and taking into account the generally acknowledged state of the art. So the state of the art is at the crux of your general safety and performance characteristics. And it's how you demonstrate that you are, uh, your, your device is suitable for its intended purpose. For your risk control measures, they have to conform to safety principles and those safety principles have to be evolving out of the general acknowledged state of the art for your specific product. For in the post-market realm, so the GSPRs are a little bit more pre-market. You have to turn those in on an initial application. You, you do have to update them. Your clinical evaluation post-market surveillance is also another big part of being able to evaluate state-of-the-art for your product. And they, the MDR requires it, that these activities are continuously conducted and that they include at least the evaluation of the state of the art. And now we're using the modifier in medicine. That's the first time that particular phrase has shown up. And you use the state of the art in medicine that is evaluated through your clinical evaluation plan to put together your, the acceptability of your benefit risk ratio for your product. So next for clinical investigations, your clinical investigation plan has to establish the current state of the art. And again, we're in, in clinical care. So this is a unique modifier compared to a performance or a risk benefit uh, ratio in context of state of the art in clinical practice and with clinical relevance in according with clinical state of the art. So again, we're starting in medicine, in clinical care, of clinical practice, with clinical state of the art. So our argument now is it's starting to morph and take on some context 
in relation to specifically state of the art as it's practiced in medicine. So are these concepts interchangeable? Are they, it certainly seems that, that using one to modify the other is at least morphing or melding these definitions. So what has happened is that we are experiencing an evolution in both a technology that impacts the standard of care. And you have to be constantly evaluating this cycle because perhaps depending on how new this technological solution is with this app-based approach, it may uh, introduce new benefits, even though it's the most technologically sophisticated, your standard of care may still be back here. And the reason for that is the adoption curve of new technology and innovation. You have uh, you know, people for everywhere from like the early adopters to people that aren't prepared for the new technology, and maybe it produces a risk because they don't know how to use it. So now we've looked at what the actual regulation of the medical device regulations say. So now we need to move to the, the MedDev guidance documents and the MDCG guidance documents to set a context around how are these things being interpreted and applied by both the European Commission and notified bodies. So MedDev 2714 Rev4 is the clinical evaluation, a guide for manufacturers and notified bodies. And so if we look at that guidance, it does not define state of the art or standard of care, but it talks about state of the art over 39 times. So again, we have to read those references for context of what it apply, implies and what we're supposed to prove about each of these. So in, for your general principles of your, your clinical evaluation, you have to determine the, uh, the benefit risk and the acceptability profile based on the current knowledge of state of the art in the medical field concerned. And you have to verify a very high level of health and safety that are acceptable to current knowledge and state of the art. So we're back to here in that, that, that concept of clinical practice we've got in medical fields. We have uh, that you have to define your scope and you have to define what is state of the art in the corresponding medical field by using, we already know, standards and guidance documents. Those are age old. Information relating to the medical condition managed and the rate that science and the understanding of diseases like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancer is progressing as faster than the, the devices and the therapies intended to treat them. So you have to look at the information or the context around what is understood about your medical condition. You have to look at what are the benchmark or the kind of age-old go-to devices for this. You have to look at other devices that might not be yet be the benchmark, but also the medical alternatives to those devices, that treatment, and what the, the information is implying. Your data on the safety and performance have to include those other devices and those alternative therapies. 
And then the, the combination of those things is now used to define what the state of the art is, but also to identify hazards. So now when you're looking at state of the art and identifying hazards, you don't just look at your device. You have to look at the hazards of your competitor devices, of new devices that might have come out, of alternative therapeutic uh, modalities in comparison to your device and how that impacts uh, the state of the art. The uh, expert documents, they're important for the assessment and current knowledge of the state of the art. Now we're getting into, they have to include clinical practice guidelines. And like we talked about, it's important to understand where, where is that clinical practice occurring? And is the clinical practice guidelines the same in all of the geographies in which you're gonna market this product? Do you even understand what the clinical practice guidelines are uh, in compared to comparison to technological features of your product? You have to include current inventions, interventions, excuse me, that uh, for the intended patient population, they, they put in parentheses, the current in interventions are considered state of the art, and that these are supposed to form the inputs to the assessments of acceptable benefit risk profiles. So we're seeing how the state of the art is being defined both technologically, medically, in clinical practice, alternative in interventions, and now, and we're seeing over and over again that it's informing benefit risk profiles, it's informing hazards. So we're starting to have tendrils out into the rest of the, the technical documentation besides just the CERs and the CEPs that this guidance document is, is specifically talking about. Again, we're, get, we're getting into the risk analysis that you're using all of this clinical data to determine that the benefits and risks are acceptable compared to what this current state of the art is in the corresponding medical field. So now if we look at the MDCG 2020 part six, clinical evidence needed for medical devices previously CE marked, a guide for manufacturers and notified bodies. Now this one's interesting because there are eight new definitions in this guidance document that, that is talking about a process that is underneath the old directive. Uh, and so they're just now invite, defining terms almost in retrospect that you should have been using for the definition of your, your clinical documentation. But notable, it does define state of the art which is nice, and it, but it does not define state of the standard of care. It does mention state of the art over 20 times. So now you're seeing we've got a trend of, we've never defined it historically until fairly recently, but we are seeing it referenced over and over again, many times in these guidance documents. And the only way to understand it is by reading those and where, how is it modifying and what does it mean I need to do? This guidance document also mentions standard of care four times. So that means that there's still a little bit of an understanding of a difference and that they're not totally interchangeable in this life cycle.
So the MDCG mentions an IMDRF guidance document uh, in 47 uh, and gives the, the following definition, the current and technical capability and or accepted clinical practice. And it's the consolidations of findings of science, technology, and experience. So that is interesting because it's a little bit of a different flair on the way 14971 defines it. And they did carry over that note though, that the state of the art embodies what is currently and generally accepted as good practice in technology and medicine, but that the state of the art does not necessarily imply the most technologically advanced solution. It talks about how do you define well-established technologies and uh, that, that these are technologies that may or may not need a in-depth clinical evaluation and the way you have to put these through this uh, almost checklist, that these have to be uh, designs with little evolution. So now we actually have the concept of the scientific evolution and technological evolution around these products introduced. It is a well, it has well-known safety and it's not been associated with safety issues in the past. And it's going to be important to be able to strip, uh, demonstrate that it's the safety issues uh, or the lack thereof aren't just unique to your product, but that for all products of this device type have also have very low safety issues. And part of that is because notified bodies aren't really buying anymore that oh, I just didn't get complaints on this. You're going to have to find other post-market surveillance tools besides just complaint data management. And that's where the MAW database and um, hopefully Udamed are going to be helpful. You have to establish that you have a well-known clinical performance and that this particular device group is standard of care. So not state of the art, but that this is standard of care. And again, that there has little evolutions in the indications and the state of the art. So now you have to prove not only are these standard of care and widely used, but there's also no alternatives that, in, that are maybe more advanced and more state of the art than these standard of care devices. So now we see these terms have to go hand in hand and the arguments uh, are not necessarily overlapping in this, this evolution context. And they also have to have a long history on the market. So for these low risk standard of care devices, where there is again, level, little evolution in state of the art, it may be possible to demonstrate conformity with the relevant GSPRs with a more limited clinical data set. So you can see that if you've got one of these types of devices, your argument about standard of care and state of the art is more important than ever to have a reasonably viable path to creating a clinical evaluation. So back to our, our evolution, you have got to look at the whole evolutionary cycle in context of both standard of care and state of the art to be able to make your, your argument. 
So the, the MDCG goes on to say that, uh, that standard of care for those wet devices that are not associated with safety concerns, you have to be able to say there has been no innovation. They're going to be less likely to be subject to research or scientific advancements or papers, which is back to that concept of you had to look at what is the latest understanding of a particular disease state in general and how the understanding of that was evolving. So here you have to prove that there has been no advancement in the research or understanding of those conditions that these devices treat. Or it may be necessary to undertake post-market clinical follow-up prior to being able to get certification under the MDR even if they are that well-established technology and have been on the market for several de decades, if there has been an evolving state of the art. So you're gonna still have to, even though it's possibility that there might be a more limited clinical data set, you're gonna have to make a huge argument around both the fact that there has been no changes in standard of care and no changes in state of the art for these technologies. In exceptional cases, they will allow that low risk and standard low risk standard of care devices with that little in evolution in the state of the art, uh, a lower level of clinical evidence that may be justified to be sufficient for the confirmation of conformity with relative GSPRs. And so you see after after all of that, where they're telling you all of the potential outs, how you could make these arguments at the end of the day, they still say it will be an exceptional case in which case that both standard of care and state of the art have not evolved. Here you can see the clinical state of the art is relating to the evaluation of clinical data. The technical state of the art is relating to the current uh, technological capability. So how do I establish a new state of the art in standard of care? Well, now we're um, back to one of the provisions in the MDR, and that's the uh, expert panel review, um, particularly for class threes, but also notified bodies for class, some two A's and two B's have to have in-house expertise. Um, and your product will have to go to panel review. So this is 12 uh, different panels that including a screening panel and each panel is product specific. And the, these all have to have uh, experts, clinical experts in these specific fields that make a determination about the ultimate um, safety and efficacy of a device as established by its clinical evaluation uh, reports. These uh, experts get appointed for three years. It, they can be uh, reviewed or, or renewed rather. The first opinion was published by the um, General and Plastic Surgery and Dentistry Panel in 2021 and it was scathing, calling that the clinical data was insufficient, the literature sur survey is flawed, 
other very, very pointed and scathing comments. It was so bad that the, um, no, the, the European Commission removed it from the website after only being up a few weeks because it caused so much um, uproar. And that's exactly the opposite of what the provisions for the MDR and the uh, and Udemed and some of these other features. You're supposed to give more transparency, but here we get the first opinion, and uh, the first thing they do is remove it from public view. So how do we? So we're continuing to evolve, and how do you establish state of the art standard of care? How is it reviewed? The next piece that the MDR um, provided for establishing was what's called the common specification development. Now, a common specification is a set of technical or clinical requirements other than, other than a standard that provide a means of complying with the legal obligations. It is applicable to a device, a process, or a system where no harmonized standards exist or when relevant harmonized standards are not sufficient or when there is a need to address public health concerns. The European Commission, this is one of many things that they are way behind on publishing these common specifications and these do come with the, from the European Commission. They're supposed to work hand in hand with the MDR and they're supposed to give guidance and infrastructure to notified bodies around these things that are maybe pushing uh, the boundaries of, of how to define state of the care, state standard of care and state of the art. Are we there yet? So now we have made it all the way through the life cycle, but now the life cycle is starting over because now we have defined the existing state of art, the art. We have defined the existing standard of care. We have been through an expert panel review that establishes our technology or validates our assumptions about our technology compared to one and two. We have followed a common specification or adopted it, and now we have established ourselves as a new stand, state of the art and standard of care. But this life cycle starts all over, and in your next technical file review, <clears throat> you're going to have to go through each one of these steps to prove that you're still state-of-the-art and standard of care, or to establish yourself as that new state-of-the-art standard of care. So if we go back to the heart of the argument, so now let's look at how these definitions, uh, interchangeable or not, with state-of-the-art and standard of care, impact our documentation across what we're going to have to turn in for a CE mark application. Well, if we look at the technical documentation, like your GSPRs, your technical file, compared to what it was, your MDD versus your MDR technical documentation requirements have significant additional requirements, particularly for the clinical evaluation process. It is an order of magnitude of uh, paperwork larger than what was uh, you were used to for the MDD. And then, um, it also impacts your risk analysis. Now, I read more than probably a dozen times that these two terms modify some aspect of the risk analysis process. 
And so if we look at state of the art compared to your risk analysis, these things are constantly moving. So you've got the lifetime of your device and the severity of your patient population and their illnesses. And then you couple in the actual understanding and growth of those. And so you may start the life cycle of your product and you may have a significant benefit over the initial, maybe the initial devices or the initial treatments or what is currently understood about state of the art. And then as your device or your technology ages, your hazards are gonna change and they may become not acceptable compared to uh, new technologies or other treatment modalities. At the heart of your post-market surveillance in your PMCF and your PSERS, we've got an order of magnitude difference in the amount of documentation that is required to demonstrate fulfillment of the requirements. And so if you look at the amount of pre-market work under FDA and the MDD, there was, a, there was always an element of post-market surveillance, but it, it wasn't the, the bulk of the lift in the documentation, but now under MDR, the burden of the post-market surveillance activities and to set them in context of a state-of-the-art argument has changed. And now you are going to spend as much time and effort in your post-market activities as you will in your pre-market activities. So you need to know that the MDCG has um, many new guidance documents on for post-market surveillance requirements. And this is just, uh, you know, all of these are, are intended, all these guidance documents are intended to expound upon what the MDR set out as the requirements. So there are many new uh, expectations to be met on the post-market side where we didn't have quite this many guidance documents before. For your clinical documentation, if this is the amount of documentation that you are uh, preparing for your MDR, you need to be prepared that between your clinical and your post-market that you're gonna put in just as much effort in the documentation and that this is going to make up about as much as the rest of your technical documentation alone. And all the argument in your clinical and your post-market is going to be fed from the rest of your technical documentation. So basically to make uh, the state of the art argument and your clinical in your clinical evaluation, your CER is king. You need to be prepared that this is going to be a uh, a five to six figure effort, and it's going to take uh, upwards of two, three, maybe even 400 hours alone to properly prepare a CER, depending on the classification of your device. It is nothing if it is not an exercise in redundancy. Between this, your clinical evaluation plan and your clinical evaluation report, you're going to have 53 repeated items. Between your post-market clinical follow-up and your CEP, CER, there are five repeated entire subsections. For your technical documentation and between your technical documentation and your CEP, CER, you have, you're going to have 14 repeated entire 
subsections. And all of these activities take primacy, primacy over the individual assessments, be it your biocompatibility, your sterility, your complaint surveillance. It's the culmination of all of that has to exist in your CER and not point towards these individual reports. It, while it's the cornerstone of your technical documentation, it's also the most subjective part of it. Um, and I, I say subject, subjective now, partly because of the resource constraints of the notified bodies. They have got a, so few um, qualified, clinically qualified people to review that they don't have enough time to train them. To train a proper technical reviewer takes 12 to 18 months. To train a proper clinical reviewer can take 18 to 24 months. And so they're just not enough people, they don't have enough training, and they don't really understand the regulatory context and infrastructure outside their snapshot of their clinical perception. And so it's becoming a very objective um, process, even though you might have, I mean, it's becoming a very sub subjective process because they don't have the understanding to, to add the objectivity to it that these guidances and uh, the regulation is supposed to give a construct for. So in a CER-centric system, the easiest CERs are going to be the most, uh, the ones with the, the easiest CSR, CERs are gonna be the ones with the most clinical evidence. The ones with the most clinical evidence are gonna be those that are higher classification device, uh, these are going to be typically your large manufacturers with your registry data um, over the last decade or extremely novel devices where they already know that they're going to have to have a lot of device specific um, studies and they have budgeted and planned accordingly. The low risk or kind of the boring or low tech products that nobody is going to ever publish literature about ironically it's going to be very difficult to write and rationalize the CER based off of a standard of care and state-of-the-art argument as we saw in our discussion of the the wet products again you have a handful of new clinical requirements so for each one of these air uh, documentation areas you need to be keeping up with what's happening in the MDCG uh, not, and not just what are the requirements for you or your products or these processes, but what expectation is your notified body going to be held to in the review of these by the uh, European Commission? On top of the general process guidances, you have got um, technology-specific guidance documents, you know, including things on uh, cybersecurity, software, standardization. So you need to be keeping up not just with what the expectations are for the process, but if there are any new guidance documents specifically relevant to your, your product or your technological features. So here's an example of the state of the art for a digital system. So it only refers to products that are de developed and already approved for sale in the marketplace. Um, you do need to think about being geography specific here. And the difference between a new state-of-the-art digital imaging system 
that's undergoing trials and one that is already CE marking is that the one that might be kind of more old school or seen antiquated is actually considered state of the art until that fancy new one with the x-ray machine remote monitoring features that's under review and trials. You can't bring a product to market with those features saying that that's state of the art until it has been cleared and been through this whole process of establishing itself as state of the art. So what does this mean for you? Well, are we having a heart attack yet? So you, manufacturers need to perform an in-depth assessment of alternative treatment methods. They need to establish state of the art. Is, establishing state of the art is critical in assessing the benefit risk ratio of the device and you have to address it in your clinical evaluation report. And then if your device has been on the market for decades and there are competitive devices that are technically superior, but present lower risk than yours, then this is gonna affect the benefit risk of your, your side, the risk side of your benefit risk equation. And so if there are devices that have progressed what are considered those, you may have to go back and say, hey, if I look at this whole context or the, uh, of how this is the environment of use, my product, even though the risk of the product itself has not changed, the risk of the use of your product compared to another product or an alternative treatment method might be a higher risk than some of those alternatives. So you really need to take a more holistic approach to making these, these arguments and establishing yourself. This all represents a paradigm shift in your go-to-market strategy. Once upon a time, the FDA had a reputation of being one of the most difficult countries to bring products to market because of the clinical data they wanted to see. And the European Union had a reputation of uh, ease of entry because it, it, it relied primarily on uh, technical or performance standards rather than clinical data. Um, this is, uh, these are like two planes passing in the night. This paradigm has totally shift, shifted and not just because of the MDR making all of this extraordinarily complicated. It also has to do with some of uh, FDA strategic priorities. Um, for their priorities that they actually set for the years 2018 to 2020, they had a goal of, of accomplishing that by December 31st of 2020, they wanted more than 50% of manufacturers of novel technologies for the U.S. to intend to bring their markets to, to their devices to market in the U.S. first or in parallel with other major markets. So they specifically set out on a mission at about the same time MDR was kind of coming into full force that uh, where their intent was to deliberately make it easier and not just by process of association with, with MDR. And so they did a survey and they had 62% um, of people that had novel technologies say that respond that they intend to bring their devices to market first in the US. You can go to my website and download uh, my free guides, my regulatory pathway assessment where 
we do the the assessment of how the AU would classify your product, what the requirements are going to be, what those technical standards are, what your burdens are going to be. Um, we also have a business market assessment where these things kind of work hand in hand, where we can do an assessment of a particular geography, the, your market potential there, and then you can compare it to the costs that are projected in your regulatory pathway assessment for keeping uh, the product on market in that geography. That was really interesting, especially the last part. I did not know about the FDA strategy to have that 50% of novel technologies first to market in the U.S. That's very interesting. Um, okay, so we did get quite a few questions in the chat, but I will remind you, um, we have, I don't know, 30 minutes or however long before we need to tap out. And uh, so definitely keep putting those questions in the chat and we'll get to those. To comply with current state-of-the-art CER requirements, do we need to do additional testing or scientific rationale with justification to not test the product per state-of-the-art standards? Or would a scientific rationale suffice? Technically, yes. I have not yet seen it be successful in an MDR review. And so the, the and um, where I was particularly challenged on this was with a notified body, it was a product where a particular, that there's a set of standards 80369 for misconnect, misconnections and a variety of different product applications, if you will. And um, for my client's product, there was a particular clause of the standard that did not apply to it because it had a different feature than all these other products. Now, they, they could have designed it to comply, but it was irrelevant because that thing's not a thing for the way their products used. So they wrote a very good rationale that included justifications from clinicians and the notified body basically said, we have way too much to do to investigate the, the legitimacy of your rationale and you just need to comply. Now that's totally unprofessional. They're not supposed to do that, but you really don't have very many repeal appeal procedures. I mean, what I have to say is that it, it's gotta be rock solid and you need to do a gap analysis if you're gonna be you, especially if you're going to be using older testing. Mm, my mind's a little blown right now. Okay. Okay. The next question is from Martina on a similar, similar note. Any advice for writing more literature supported CERs where there is not enough literature? Um, investigations, should we rationalize with individual auditors? I don't know. You may have already answered this one. Yeah, and so this is where your clin your CEP clinical evaluation plan and your post market clinical follow up will be super important. Where you know you have a lack of literature, um, is is that you need to be prepared that that you have got some method of collecting device specific data in the absence of literature. Also, if you think that you might qualify as one of those wet technologies because of the lack of literature, um, have conversations with your notified body about that. Okay, and there were some questions about the wet technologies. Um, Robin asked, so on your slide 33, she mentioned that wet technology is specifically defined as dental products, suture staples. How do you, you handle legacy devices that have been CE marked for years, still need to meet standard of care, no innovation, disease state, et cetera? 
Um, since the MDCG focuses on wet, on, focuses on wet, do other devices fall into this, like ultrasound devices? Probably, likely not ultrasound devices because those have got a ton of electrical safety standards and other uh, things, uh, you know, software, other things that are are evolving technologically from a state of the art perspective. So I would think that these would be, you know, kind of lower risk, you know, uh, uh, devices, you know, some to a 1S, 1R that may, might not have previously gone underneath um, scrutiny of this type. Are wet devices limited to those that are listed in Chapter 6, Article 61, 6B? No, it's my understanding of that guidance document that, that it's giving those as specific examples, but it's also giving you a context in which to make an argument about WEP. Um, but I think it's also important to say that it said exceptional cases. Okay. So you, you can't, it's worth a conversation with your notified body. And at the time you have the conversation, you need to already be prepared with your research that demonstrates the both the the lack of information available the lack of evolution and standard of care and the lack of evolution in state of the art to, to and you've got to be able to check all three of those boxes to be, even be able to approach a conversation about it and even if even then it's going to be exceptional Another question from Martina, what is the difference in content of a harmonized standard versus common specification? Is it just the question of who's issuing it? You know, uh, that is a good question. And I think the whole world really wants to know that because I don't know that any have been issued yet. You have to go, if, if, if there have been any, it's not many at all. Okay. I don't think it's really enough to understand. If I had to hypothesize, I wonder if it's going to be similar to what the FDA is doing with their new abbreviated 510K program. I can't remember the, an acronym for it yet, but they're publishing guidance documents that reference not only a, co a collection of standards that they consider to be state of the art for a particular technology, but they also references specific acceptance criteria that they expect to see. Specific testing, uh, maybe for biocompatibility or electrical safety that, you know, might have been up to a manufacturer's discretion to a point before. You know, and, and they're very, and they're product specific. I think the FDA has about five or six of them out now. But that's just a hypothesis. Another question about the wet devices can you please clarify one more so you first mentioned no safety issues and but then said very low safety issues in totality so can a product be a wet device with a low safety issue rate in the overall market yeah and i think what i was trying to point out there was that not just you can't just look at your device and what's happening for your one device but you really need to look at the collection of adverse events as a whole. And then you can say, then if you can say, hey, this suture, not only does my suture or whatever have a, a low, you know, we our post-market surveillance data is great. We never get any complaints. 
Um, but also when I looked at all the information available in databases, all my competitors are also low. So it's not just because my product's superior, it's that these things really do not have a high failure rate in the field. Period. Okay. Yeah. So it's almost like you have an absolute and a relative. So. Mm -hmm. Okay. This question comes from Lauren. For the guidance documents from MDCG, there was supposed to be one coming out in P on PSUR in Q2 of 2022. Have you heard anything about that guidance document? No. Can you comment on how to determine the deadline by which a product must comply with the latest release version of an applicable EN standard? Say that again. Can you comment on how to determine your deadline by which a product must comply uh, with the latest EN standard? So you've got to look at your publication date and usually they give you like an adoption period of time, but, and then you also need to compare that to your certification cycle and where you're at in that adoption period. Like you're, you're F, like if you're kind of, at the mid or end of it, you're, you, you need to be making a plan based off of your certification cycle to have your testing updated at that certification cycle. Would you base our state-of-the-art literature search primary on clinical studies only or a combination of clinical studies and guidelines, systematic reviews and meta-analysis or a combination of the two? limitations to the systematic literature search can be difficult when you have a medical device type with a lot of data. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Uh, to, to a point, um, and if I don't answer it correctly, he could please clarify. Um, I think that all three are important and in, in your inclusion and exclusion criteria are gonna be super important. Like how can you tie up, tighten up your exclusion criteria to get down to the most relevant and applicable data sets across all three of, of those. And to me, it sounds like that all three of those will have different utilities in making an argument for standard of care or state of the art or these alternative therapies. Um, so maybe also, uh, maybe not you utilize them all unilaterally or equally, but different tools for specific different purposes in, in this argument. Claudia asked if you can comment a little bit more on developing uh, or, or on the state of the art when the device and its technology are novel or there's no currently marketed predicate or similar device. That's going to be um, tricky and that's where on the, the CER is king slide, novel devices have got the potential to be easier because most novel devices will have actual studies of some sort. And actual studies always trump literature or anything else. You know, you still gotta set the context for the, the environment in which your novel thing is gonna be the, the next great thing, but, but clinical trials will always be the, you know, the, the favorites of notified bodies and the clinical review panels. Interesting. So just to make sure I fully understand. So like I know I, when I think about the FDA, a novel I, a novel device like the de novo process is more difficult, but you're, are you suggesting a, a novel device could even be more could easier? In, in the EU. Right, right. 
right. Yes. Interesting. Yeah, okay. In, in the U.S. for de novo, pretty much you're going to have to have clinical data of some sort. Yeah. You, you know, um, in the EU, you will. So if you have a novel device, it might be just as easy for you to pursue MDR and FDA at the same time. Like if you're going to have to do a trial, then the MDR is not quite as big of a deal for you. Okay. Interesting. But, That's something I haven't heard anyone talking about. Yeah. Fun fact, uh, there are 18,000 uh, MDD certificates that are issued, that are certificates issued under the MDD that are set to expire by uh, May of 2024. Only 1,000 have been issued. 6,000 and the notified bodies, I believe collectively, all 29 or 30 of them, only have the capacity to issue 6,300 certificates a year. Do the math. And you tell me of all those devices that currently hold MDE certificates, how many do you think are novel and are gonna have clinical investigations? Not gonna say so not like the class threes are probably gonna be fine. Some of the two Bs will be fine, some won't. So at the most we just the quick math going on in my head that at the most 75 percent and that's a very optimistic number could even potentially be very because you've also got a, a competing number in that 50 percent of the technical documentation handed in is incomplete or inadequate wow so you just took okay. that 75 percent best case and cut it by half <laughs> so if you hadn't had a, already had a heart attack during this webinar okay um, let's just be in the top echelon, I guess. Have you any information about the requests by France and Germany to delay the deadline for MDR implementation? Um, I believe that that was met with a resounding uh-uh by the note by the European Commission when they published. I don't have the the number on the top of my head, um, but it was a recent. It was came out end of June. It was a notification to manufacturers and. It was scathing. It was like, you know, we gave you a little extra rope because of COVID and all you did was use it to tie a noose for yourself instead of get ready. And we're not gonna expand this just because you are not ready. And we told you to be ready. We gave you an extra year to be ready. You've got, you've got all this very long transition plan and you know, it's like it's like a kid getting in trouble. It, it's like, you know, the parents that said, we told you not to do that. Now look what happened. Another question, would you do a qualitative or quantitative benefit risk assessment for class three and implantable devices? <laughs> I got so many opinions about this. Um, risk management is just, it's subjective. I mean, objective, it's objective. If you put numbers on it until you're in post-market and you could actually have numbers to make it real, otherwise you put all these numbers on them, but you pull them out of a hat. And so that doesn't, by putting a number on it, it doesn't magically make it quantitative until you've got post-market, like I sold this many units, I got this many complaints, that means I have a failure rate of this. My original estimation before I had post-market data was that, 
either I validated that or I invalidated that, and then you can move forward in a quantitative method. Yeah, great point. Um, I always thought the same thing, you know, pre-market, you're mostly, I mean, you are qualitative. You might think you're quantitative, yeah. One question is, we are just starting to get our devices into the European markets. Which report should I start with as they all link together? Seems like starting the M, the risk management report, risk management plan, then post-market and tie them all together with the CEP, CER. I keep getting back and forth on how to pull them all together. That is a really tough one because they're all so integrated and you can't really write a complete CEP, CER without things like your biocompatibility assessment, your sterility assessment, and knowing what some of your performance uh, tests are. Um, so fundamentally, there has to be a certain amount of the technical documentation done, but also at the same time, you don't. there's a certain amount of CEP and CER that can be started without it, like the literature search. And you know, and and how are you going to sort or prioritize or weight your your inclusion as you know? None of that has to do with your technical documentation. So I would say, kind of divide and conquer. And like, you know, if you were thinking in a Gantt chart methodology, what are your interdependent tasks and what are your independent tasks? And the other thing is that you need to know that it's going to take a team. This is like, a, it's gonna take a village to raise a CE Mark medical product. You know, in the old days, you would just throw your regulatory, maybe an engineer and a quality person in a room and don't come out till the technical file is done. But now, now the level of expertise is so deep, you're probably not gonna need just all those people, but you're gonna need a clinical person. You may need a biocompatibility specialist. You may need a sterility specialist. You may need, and it, it just the, the number of people involved and the depth of knowledge that they need so i also wouldn't think of this as interdependent as what do i do first but who can i get to work on all the first things you know and, and like you're gonna you need a team um, so I want to thank you so much for the informative presentation, all the valuable insights you gave during the Q&A portion as well. Did you have any last comments or things you wanted to say before I close this down? Just make sure that you are communicating with your upper management the realities of this situation. Um, make sure that you um, got the Team NB survey, that's those numbers that I rattled off came out of that. Uh, that survey and that you know the reality of this this situation that you can communicate it properly so that you can ask for enough time enough money that your management your business development team have done that market analysis and they know that they're going to sell enough product to support these costs lastly you know call me if you need help with uh, what we've talked about today or any of these other areas Fantastic. Thank you so much, Michelle.